Let's read our psalm tonight, Psalm 101. It's only eight verses, very short. I think it's applicable to our times and what's going on. And then we'll pray. Psalm 101, a psalm of David. I will sing of the steadfast love and justice to you, O Lord. I will make music. I will ponder the way that is blameless. Oh, when will you come to me? I will walk with integrity of heart within my house. I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. A perverse heart shall be far from me. I will know nothing of evil. Whoever slanders his neighbor secretly, I will destroy. Whoever has a haughty look and an arrogant heart, I will not endure. I will look with favor on the faithful in the land that they may dwell with me. He who walks in the way that is blameless shall minister to me. No one who practices deceit shall dwell in my house. No one who utters lies shall continue before my eyes. Morning by morning, I will destroy all the wicked in the land, cutting off all the evildoers from the city of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we do pray tonight as we open this psalm that you will open our eyes, that we can see wonderful things in your law. May we leave here today knowing more about you, knowing more about Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and the work that you'd have us do. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, lately, things are so bad in politics that about all you can do is joke about it, right? And it was Theodore Roosevelt who said 120 years ago, you think things were bad now, they were bad back then. Theodore Roosevelt said, when they call the roll call in the Senate, the senators do not know whether to answer present or not guilty. And someone also said, the congressmen should wear uniforms like NASCAR drivers. At least then we could identify who their corporate sponsors are. And then someone said, I don't approve of political jokes. I've seen too many of them get elected. Someone else said, what's the difference between a politician and a snail? One is slimy, a pest, and leaves a trail everywhere, and the other is a snail. A little boy went to his dad and said, Dad, I want to be in politics when I grow up. The dad said, are you insane? Have you completely lost your mind? Are you a moron? The kid said, forget it. There seems to be too many requirements. And my personal favorite, politics is the most accurate word in the English language. Poly means many, and ticks means blood-sucking parasites. (laughs) On a serious note, (laughs) Steve Lawson, in his introduction to Psalm 101, writes, In this present hour of personal integrity is fast becoming an endangered species. Everywhere one looks, once highly esteemed values of an upright character are vanishing, Scandals dominate the headlines. Business tycoons sell sell stock illegally. Government officials accept kickbacks. Corporate executives deceive their own stockholders. Politicians break once-honored codes of ethics. Across the board, integrity is quickly eroding. Our contemporary culture is proficient at producing corrupt people who are skilled at lying, cheating, falsifying, stealing, distorting, and covering up the truth. The crying need of the hour is for God's people to pursue personal holiness and integrity. As they do, Christians will stand out as bright lights in a dark world. Believers must be different if they are to make a difference. Psalm 101 reflects a passionate commitment to pursue personal integrity in all that one does. As the king of Israel, David the author determined to live righteously before God and the people. This psalm records David's desire to see integrity restored to the nation of Israel. Such a pursuit of integrity, he understood, 
must begin with his own life before he could see it in others. David must first live it in himself. I titled this psalm the I Will Psalm, and in the English Standard Version, which I read from, we have the word I will ten times. Uh, You have the word shall five times. So you've got will and shall, two verbs, action words. And then you've got two nouns. It says twice, my house twice, and my eyes twice. So the eyes eyes and house are the nouns. So there needs to be action. There needs to be resolutions. There needs to be commitments taken to have a clean heart and a clean house and clean eyes. David's desire is to be blameless. Now, set the stage. King Saul is dead. Saul was a horrible king. He was the first king of Israel, and he was a bad king. And he's going to leave a lot of corrupt, bad people in power, and David needs to get rid of those people, and David needs to set up a godly kingdom. David is probably about 30 years old here, so he's young. So remember, David's going to serve 40 years. So this is at the beginning of his reign. It's his, like you make New Year's resolutions. He's making resolutions to God. He's making vows to God that he wants to walk in integrity and be a faithful leader in Israel. What action does King David want to keep away from? When you read through this psalm, there's words like evil, evildoers, wicked, lies, deceit, arrogant heart, haughty looks, slander, perverse heart, and worthlessness. A little bit of history about this psalm. Martin Luther loved this psalm so much, he wrote 80 pages on these eight verses. But Martin Luther was deeply concerned about civil government and the corruption that was there, and he wanted the, 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 the qualities in this psalm to be for all government authorities. In Europe, this psalm became called the Prince's Psalm, and I don't know which archduke, but there was a duke who was upset with one of his uh, ministers, one of his politicians in his, his cabinet. So he wrote a copy of Psalm 101, and he mailed it to this corrupt uh, minister in his cabinet. And that became a proverb in the country. When an official did anything wrong, he would receive the prince's psalm to read. I was thinking, maybe our politicians in Washington, instead of putting their hand on the Bible, maybe we ought to open it and have them read Psalm 101. It says in the heading, A Psalm of David... And the type of psalm, okay, remember, the Psalm 93 to Psalm 100 are called the theocratic psalms, okay? And all of a sudden you come to Psalm 101, now this is going to be called the royal psalm. Royal psalms speak about the king of Israel and ultimately the eternal king, Yahweh. The psalm was used probably for the coronation of Israel's kings. And the psalm, as I mentioned, was written at the beginning of David's reign. The main idea is David is determined to live and reign righteously as Israel's king and surround himself with godly people. His concern is with the moral character of the nation. David is going to set standards and make resolutions by which what kind of king he's going to be and what kind of leader he's going to be. So this psalm is committed to those standards. You have four points in your outline. I will worship, I will walk in purity, I will keep godly company, and I will cut off the wicked. Let's begin with paragraph 1, verse 1. David has just been crowned the king of Israel. Actually, he was crowned king three times. But he knows that God has chosen him to be the king of Israel. And he's grateful in heart. And so the first resolution and the first two I wills, he's going to sing, he's going to praise the Lord, he's going to make music. So first off, he's going to sing of God's love and justice. Two very important words. Okay. In the first I will, David is going to sing 
of the twofold manifestation of God's character in the past, in the present, and the future in dealing with Israel. Steadfast love and justice. Now, maybe your Bible, NASB says mercy. The King James says love. New Living Translation says loving kindness, I think. This is the love that flows from God, the Father, and Jesus' his Son. Then we have the word justice. Justice deals with equity, truth, holiness, and righteousness. These words are found quite often. There's a very famous verse in Micah 6, 8. 25 years ago, we would sing this song in the youth group next door, Micah 6, 8, which says, He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Hosea 12.6 says almost the same thing. So you, by the help of your God, return, hold fast to love and justice, and wait continually before your God. So in the Old Testament, these two words, steadfast love and justice, the people, the leaders of Israel knew they were to do it because it was what when the attributes of God. And then in the New Testament, right away in Matthew... You remember that Matthew 23, when Jesus is saying, woe, woe, woe to the Pharisees and the scribes, he says in Matthew 23, 23, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you're hypocrites, for you tithe men and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. So the religious leaders of Israel, not just King David, were required to show steadfast love and justice. We haven't quite got there in our study on Sunday in Hebrews, but in Hebrews 11, uh, when we get to Hebrews 11:32 to 34, it talks about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel. And then in verse 33 of Hebrews 11, it says, who through faith conquered kingdoms, and the second thing, enforced justice. So they conquered kingdoms, and whoever was the leader of Israel knew that one of their number one priorities was to enforce justice in the land of Israel. Because God is a God of steadfast love and justice, David knows he needs to be a godly ruler and have these two attributes of God in his home and his kingdom. The second I will, in the last part of verse 1, is I will make music. Perhaps your translation says I will sing praises. So the second I will is to make music. You know, the, the Bible calls David a man after God's own heart. It also calls David the sweetest psalmist of Israel. He loved music, making music. We know David better for slinging a slingshot in his hand, but we forget that often he was playing that harp to try to calm King Saul's torments when he was tormented by demons. Psalm 33, 2-3 says, Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre, that's a harp. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. In David's home, there was a love for music, In his palace, there was a love for music that went along with praising God for his attributes. Is there in your home? We sing what we care about, don't we? I mentioned before that right now there's some incredible music out, and a lot of it about the Psalms. I mentioned Getty music, Sovereign Grace music, uh, City of Light, my personal favorite right now. The more you read the Psalms, the more you will praise the Lord. One reason I ask you to read one Psalm a day. Let's get into the bulk of our message tonight, and that's point number two. I will walk in purity, verses two to five. After extolling his worship, David now turns to his personal life. Remember, David is the new king over Israel. 
And there are still many wicked men, probably in positions of authority left over from King Saul's reign. You're going to see six I wills in verse 2 to 5. Before we look at the four subpoints, you might be thinking, well, I'm not the king of Israel. This doesn't apply to me. This psalm doesn't seem very interesting or apply to me. You know, men, men will read 1 Timothy 3 and say, well, I'm not an elder. This doesn't apply to me. Women might read Proverbs 31 and say, I'm not going to do that or keep that up. But the whole Bible has standards that we need to strive and we need to live for. In this psalm, David is going to set some resolutions. He's going to set some pretty high standards. And I know you're all thinking, well, he probably failed at that one with the Bathsheba incident. But Jesus Christ said in Matthew 5.48, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And 2 Corinthians 3.18 says that believers are being transformed each and every day into an ever-increasing likeness of Jesus Christ. If you're growing in your faith, you're becoming more and more like Jesus. You're sinning less. You're hating sin. So making resolutions to walk biblical, to be pure of heart, to hate sin, is a smart way to strive to be like Jesus. Let's look at some of the resolutions that David made about himself and his rule. Number one, I will maintain pure feet. This is a loaded verse. You could preach a sermon on it. There's actually like three, three points in this verse here. Um, he says, I will ponder the way that is blameless. Oh, when will you come to me? I will walk with integrity in my heart. So first off, he's going to ponder. He's, uh, maybe your translation says, uh, I will carefully attend to the blameless way. Uh, the NIV says, I will be careful to lead a blameless life. King James says, I will behave wisely in the perfect way. So David's going to ponder. He's going to think out uh, how to set his home and his kingdom in order. And the first thing he considers is how to be blameless. He knows the Lord's steadfast love and justice would be motivating factors for King to, be, to lead a blameless life. Having observed the ways of the Lord, David gives himself to try to be a, live, live a godly life of integrity. David remembers that Noah was called a righteous and blameless man in Genesis 6-9. David knows in Genesis 17-1, God told Abraham, walk before me and be blameless. David probably knows about Job 1-1, says there was a man in the land of us whose name was Job. That man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. Psalms 119 probably wasn't written yet, but it says in verse 1, blessed are those whose way is blameless who walk in the law of the Lord. We are to strive as believers in Christ to walk in a blameless way. Colossians 1.22 says, Now that Jesus has reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless above reproach before him. Jesus wants to present us holy and blameless. And Jude 24 says, Now to him, it's a doxology in Jude, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. A blameless lifestyle is one that's faithful, obedient to God, one in which there cannot be an accusation of blatant sin. David needs to be blameless in his life and his house. That requires constant vigilance and frequent maintenance. Look at the second part of verse 2. Oh, when will you come to me? This is actually a short prayer. Okay, This is why we believe that this uh, psalm was written at the beginning of David's reign because of this verse, or this part of a verse, Oh, when will you come to me? Uh, we believe that, that this goes back to 2 Samuel chapter 6, verses 1 to 11. I won't go there and take a lot of time tonight, but 
You remember the first time David tried to bring the Ark of the Covenant into uh, Jerusalem? He messed up, didn't he? Uh, he did not have the priest carry it. Uh, he had him put it on an ark, and the ark, the oxen stumbled, the ark slipped, and Uzziah reached out his hand and touched the ark, and God killed Uzziah. Uh, R.C. Sproul said, the dirt that touched the ark was holier than Uzziah's hands. So David was angry. David was very afraid. So he leaves the ark at uh, a, a Levite's house, Obed-Edom, I think it was, for three months, and in that three months, I think that's when Psalm 101 was written. Because it says in 2 Samuel 6, 9, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? Almost what David says here in verse 2. Oh, when will you come to me? See, for David, the presence of the ark means the presence of the Lord. They're nearly the same thing. So he wanted the ark in Jerusalem, but he messed up the first time. But he got it right the second time and brought the ark there. The third part of Verse 2 is, I will walk in integrity of heart within my house. David is determined to walk in integrity of heart within his house and his administration. Accountability begins at home. One's private life must match one's public life. D.L. Moody said, character is what you are in the dark. And Steve Lawson said, personal integrity is a precious commodity that enriches all who possess it. The English Dictionary defines the word integrity as steadfast adherence to a strict moral or ethical code, the state of being unimpaired, soundness, the quality or condition of being whole, undivided, or being complete. Integrity, in fact, comes from a root word meaning total integration of all the parts of one's life into a constant whole. When a believer lives with integrity, the word of God is completely integrated into his life. No area is untouched or infected by obedience to the scripture. Integrity describes someone who is marked by honesty, sincerity, and incorruptibility. He is without hypocrisy or duplicity. Someone with integrity is consistent with his stated convictions. Psalm 25, 21 says, May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Psalm 26, 1, if you were ever accused falsely of anything, that's the vindication psalm. Psalms 26.1 says, Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity, and I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Psalms 26, verse 11 says, But as for me, I shall walk in my integrity, redeem me, and be gracious to me. The book of Proverbs speaks of integrity at least eight times. I'll just read one verse. Proverbs 10.9 says, Whoever walks in integrity walks securely, but he who makes his ways crooked will be found out. There's three C's in character. There's character, conduct, conversation that deal with integrity. There was an Indian proverb I wrote down almost 30 years ago that said, if your wealth is lost, nothing is lost. If health is lost, something is lost. If character is lost, everything is lost. Because you can't get your integrity back once you lose it. Uh, If you want to study more on integrity... Lance preached, uh, uh, I think, a nine-point sermon on integrity. We had a bookmark, if you remember that. So you can get that if you want to. We all know what happened to David as, sadly, he did lose his character. We'll talk more about that later. So that's, I will maintain pure feet. Let's move on to number two. I will maintain pure eyes. The ESV says, I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. I prefer the NIV. 
I don't, you know, my dad used to joke the NIV is the never inspired version, but every once in a while it has a verse, and this, this says it right here. I will not look with approval on anything that is vile. That word vile means morally despicable, physically repulsive. So I think the NIV nailed it right there. Uh, the, the New Living Translation says vile and vulgar. Uh, this word in the King James is balal, or balal. It's the same word used in 2 Corinthians 6.5 for Satan. In 2 Corinthians 6.5 it says, you know, what accord has Christ with balal? So if you're not pure of heart or pure of eyes, then your mind is not going to be pure. The king's desire is to look only upon that as what is righteous, and we'll talk about that later. Uh, when I was studying, there's, a, there's an illustration that Father Ralph, his name is Beating, Beating and he was, a, I think he's Catholic, but he's the founder of the Christian Appalachian Project, and he talks about an Easter visit to a poor home in Kentucky. In case you didn't know it, Kentucky's one of the poorest uh, in the mountain areas uh, where they recently had the floods. So he was visiting families along this Kentucky mountain creek bed, and he stopped at a shack where there was a man and a woman live with their children. The only heat was the fireplace. They proudly ushered the, the father over to a corner of dim room where a two-month-old baby lay. The baby was not in a crib, a bassinet, or a cradle, or even had a pillow lined with a basket. The child, the family's most precious treasure, lay in a cage made of tightly woven chicken wire. The father sat there for a moment, stunned with silence. And out of curiosity, he finally got the better of him, and he asked, why is that little child in a cage? And he said, I'll never forget the answer. The father looked at him and said, we have to keep him in this little cage so that the rats won't eat on him. See, it wasn't cruelty that motivated the father to put the baby in the cage. On the contrary, like every parent, he deeply loved his newborn baby. No doubt he built that every bit of that chicken wire cage with love in his hands and a desperate hope in his heart to protect his child. So this asks the question to parents out here tonight. What kind of cages are you building in your home? What kind of cages are there around your television? around your internet, around video games. The combination of these three ungodly things, television shows, unfiltered internet, and violent video games, have, after all, a full generation have taken a terrible toll on our country, I think. You and I may not be able to do much about the national morality, but every one of us can and must take control in our homes. Do you have an unhindered sewer line that brings unfiltered filth into your home? Build a cage there. Start now. Don't allow television, the internet, or video games to ruin your spiritual life or your children's spiritual life. Someone said, worthlessness in our heart produces wickedness. Okay? Let's move on. We looked at, I will maintain pure feet. I will maintain pure eyes. And now, I will maintain pure company. He says in verse, the last part of verse 3, I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. A perverse heart shall be far from me. I will know nothing of evil. The New Living Translation says, I hate all who deal crookedly. Remember, he would have many men from Saul's uh, cabinet left over. He says, I will have nothing to do with him. I will reject perverse ideas and stay away from every evil. 1 Corinthians fifteen thirty three, in the New Testament says, Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Proverbs 25, 5 says, 
Solomon, his son, would write this, Take away the wicked from the presence of the king, and his throne will be established in righteousness. Proverbs 20, 26 says, A wise king winnows the wicked and drives the wheel over them. David is going to hate those who fall away. means faithless, means corrupt, crooked, looking out, they're in there for money, whatever. Those who would abandon the law, those who are dishonest, those who are untrustworthy in their work, David doesn't want them near him, his home, his cabinet, his palace, his country. So we'll talk more about this point in verses 6 to 7. But let's move on to number four. I will maintain pure ears. Again, we've got two more I wills here. Whoever slanders his neighbor, I will secretly destroy. Whoever has a haughty look and an arrogant heart, I will not endure. These were three sins that the King David must hate. Slander, pride, and an arrogant heart. These three were not to be tolerated in David's kingdom. The slanderer is someone who has haughty eyes and he has a proud heart. Slanderer can give false testimony. He can bring the wrong verdicts in the king's court, which can affect the king. J.J. Stewart said about this, The secret slanderer, seeking to integrate himself in his prince's favor by pulling down others, and the haughty, overbearing noble would be no uncommon characters in any court, at least of all in an oriental court. There would be a lot of bad people trying to climb to the top, and they would do whatever it takes to get there. Slander and arrogant people must be removed from the king's court. It was the king's responsibility to rid society and his cabinet, his palace, of these criminal elements. Haughty, haughty look means pride. Proverbs 21.4 says, Haughty eyes and a proud heart, the lamp of the wicked, are sin. Let's move on to point number three. I will keep godly company. Okay? So this third section probably deals with David's court and the king. We've talked a little bit about it in the last sub-point, but this is about David's cabinet and his court. You know, if you go to 2 Samuel chapter 8, verses 15 to 18, go there real quick because it's kind of interesting. 2 Samuel 8. I want to show you something that notice this week. 2 Samuel. It's going to list David's cabinet. 2 Samuel chapter 8, verse 15, And David reigned over all Israel, and David administered, what did he minister? Justice and equity to all his people. Joab, the son of Zariah, was over the army. Josephat, the son of Ahulid, was the recorder. Zadok, the son of Atib, and Amalek was the son of Abathar, were the priests. And Sarara was the secretary. And Benaniah, the son of Jehoiada, was over the Cherites, the Pelethites, and David's sons were priests. Now, if you take time to go to 1 Kings chapter 4, it does the same thing for King Solomon and all his servants. And actually, when Lance preached on that text, on the, on when he studied Solomon, he had a lot of detail about that. Solomon actually lists the high priest first there. But you know, when you go through the next 18 kings of Israel, it doesn't have all those guys. See, David set it right. David set the worship up in the temple. David set the cabinet up. He set the government up in Israel. He was the first one. Solomon followed. But I think after that, a lot of them were just dictators, not rulers. So I found that interesting. But uh, uh, the, the Holy Spirit here is going to take time to let us know what's in David's court. I've got three subpoints here. I will associate with the faithful. I will associate with the blameless. And I will associate with the faultless. So David, first off, says, I will associate with the favor. He says, I'm going to look on favor on the faithful in the land that they may dwell with me. Dwell with me means in the palace, being part of my cabinet or my kingdom. 
Uh, the New Living Translation says, I will search for faithful people to be my companions. Only those who are above reproach will be allowed to serve me. In contrast to verse 5, where David wants to remove prideful, arrogant people, verse 6 says he wants faithful, blameless people to come and administer in his cabinet. David is going to search for such faithful characters to be in his court. Only by surrounding himself with the best and the most capable men who will advance the interests of God can the king be rest assured that the kingdom of God is strengthened. You know, I've thought about that, that, you know, we elect the president, and I don't think the presidents we elect are often some of the smartest people, okay, whether they're Republican or Democrat. It's who they surround themselves with. That First Timothy 2 says, pray for your leaders. We need to pray for the leaders around the president and around the vice president because uh, they're the ones making the decisions probably to go to war, making the decisions to do a lot, especially with the current president. But remember to pray not just for the leaders, but that they be surrounded with strong, wise, godly counselors. In our prayer card this month, we're asking you to pray for Israel. Israel has rejected its Messiah, but we still pray for that government, that they'd have wise, strong, godly leaders. Number two, I will associate with the blameless. He says, he who walks in that way that is blameless shall minister to me. So in verse two, David made a resolution to walk blameless himself. Now he wants the same for those people serving in his court. Normally, the word minister in the Old Testament would refer to priests or Levites, but here it would refer to court officials who assist the king in his daily functions. The one who ministers is a servant who waits on somebody, means serving in the king's court. David wants to be blameless, and he wants blameless men and women serving in his court. Number three, he says, I will associate with the faultless. He says, no one who practices deceit shall dwell in my house, no one utters lies shall continue before my eyes. The presence of evil cannot be tolerated. David uses two expressions for evil workers that he does not want in his court, deceitful and liars. You know, the foundation of any godly kingdom is truth. Pilate said 2,000 years ago, what is truth? He didn't have a godly kingdom. David is saying that anyone who has these characteristics, he wants to remove them from office and their duties. The application for us is that we need to surround our families, our friends, you know, and at work it's kind of hard to do it. I remember, you know, many years ago, it's been 25 years ago, but Monday morning was the dirty joke time around the water cooler. But I wouldn't go there, but somebody would come up and hear a dirty joke and I would just cut them off. I don't want to hear it. Go tell it to somebody else. Get lost. Because they just love to come around and tell dirty jokes and do things. You've got to take drastic action. You've got to let people know. Uh, Lance Sparks said something many years ago. He said, the company you keep in this life often determines the company you will keep in the next life. And that's so true of our children who we've got to keep around. Sadly, some of the people who give you the most trouble in our life are our families, right? Our relatives. Few families are godly from top to bottom. So you may have to leave some social events. You may have to not visit some relatives. And you may have to especially tell your children why. Your children need to know that theme in Joshua, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Let's look at point number four. I will cut off the wicked. This is a hard one for us. It's an easy one for King David because he's going he's to say, I want to silence the wicked and then I want to cut off, I want to slay the evildoer. He says, morning by morning, I will destroy all the wicked of the land. 
the New Living Translation says, My daily task is to ferret out the wicked and free the city of the Lord from their grip. So finally, David says, I want to destroy the wicked from the land morning by morning. This does not mean that David's going to go around killing people in the morning. But it does mean that he's going to hold court every morning with his, with his judiciary, his judges, his cabinets. And it, you could look at 2 Samuel 15, 2, Jeremiah 21, 12, Zephaniah 3, 5 for some examples. Dispensing justice was to be a, a daily routine. You, you saw how many times we use that word justice, justice. Every king of Israel knew they were to dispense justice, but sadly many of them did not. It was to be their highest priority, in fact. It was the king, and in the New Testament, it tells us that our leaders are to execute justice and punish those who do wrong, Romans 13. Sin must be dealt with in David's home, and sin must be dealt with in David's cabinet, in his kingdom, and in his country. And we should say sin must be dealt with in our homes, in our churches, and in our country. Number two, he says, I will slay the evildoers. The last part of verse 8 says, cutting off all the evildoers from the city of the Lord. The king must be ruthless in dealing with evildoers. For any judicial system to work, wickedness must be done promptly and sternly. The exact opposite of what's not happening in our country. David wants to winnow out the cheats, the crooked, the liars, and the murderers. Remember the study in King Solomon? The first thing King Solomon did in his reign is he executed three people right away. Three people, right? He, he knew what his father had taught him. So when it says cutting off, that, that talks about the death penalty. You know, and it says, in the city of our Lord, what, is do, what evil is done in Jerusalem is going to be done throughout the whole land of Israel. So the death penalty is, is biblical, and I won't need to go to the Old Testament and spend time on it, but I was reading this week that currently there are 700, about 700 inmates on California death row. There's only 2,500 nationwide. But that, and it, some of these have been in death row for over 40 years. California has the most death row inmates, but the last execution California had was January 2006. The governor, our governor, is closing the death row prisons. And actually, there's only 27 states that allow the death penalty now, and only 23 forbid it. But the, the statistic that shocked me the most was, in the year 2020, they don't have the statistics out for 2021, but in the year 2020, 17 people were executed with the death penalty in the United States of America. The FBI says, in that same year, 21,570 people were murdered in the United States. Shocking numbers. So this verse is hard for us to be applicable. We can't go out and kill people. <laughs> We can't go out and administer justice. But, you know, I remember the last election we had. The last election we had, I was talking to one of you about, how do you vote for those judges? I don't know them. And we were looking online for Christian web pages, because, you know, you can find Christian web pages to vote for the politicians, right? This governor is good on, on abortion, this governor's not, or this. But the judges, it was almost impossible to, to know who they were, what they stood for. And the same thing with district attorneys. And judges, it's hard to know how to do them. But, you know, so this verse may be hard for us to be applicable, but we need to support and fight for justice and hang with those who do the same. Support our police. Uh, support our district attorneys with strong district attorneys, judges, and especially politicians. So, you know, 
David may have failed in many areas, but this psalm and all the royal psalms don't just represent the, the Psalm 72, for example, would represent the kingdom of Solomon when he was coronated. This psalm would represent David at the beginning of his psalm. It doesn't just represent the king of Israel. It ultimately represents the coming ministry of Jesus Christ. He comes to sing of mercy and justice also. He will walk in a perfect way, unlike King David. He will hate wickedness. He's going to humble the proud. He's going to destroy the wicked from the city of the Lord. Revelation says about the new Jerusalem in Revelation 21, 27, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Thus David's vow here is upheld by Jesus and fulfilled by him at the same time. So for application tonight, I just wanted you to think, I know what you're all thinking. David served 40 years, and he broke probably every single one of these I wills, didn't he? But the one that you're all thinking about is the event with Bathsheba, right? Because he says in verse number three, I will not set before my eyes anything that is vile. Now, Bathsheba was a very beautiful woman. She's not ugly, but looking at her was vile and, and, and sinful. So David's about 30 years old. He's going to make these resolutions about his house, his kingdoms. And he ruled for 40 years and ultimately failed. He failed with the sin with Bathsheba. He didn't deal with Job, who murdered two generals. He should have kicked him out of his, his cabinet. He didn't deal with his own son when uh, Amnon raped uh, uh, his daughter. And then he had a haughty, proud look when he had the census, which ultimately cost the lives of 70,000 Israelites. So David probably failed on each and every one of these resolutions. But the one verse is the one we always think about. Verse 3, I will not set for my eyes anything worthless. And you know the story in 2 Samuel. It says in a time when kings go to war, King David should have been at war with his men, but he's standing up on his roof, having slept very late that morning. He looked across the rooftop, and he saw a beautiful woman taking a bath. So he starts thinking about her. If he could take her for himself. They told him flat out, she is the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Uh, and she's married to another. But he's the king. So he plotted, he schemed, and he had her, had her come over, committed adultery, and eventually he committed murder. In fact, he probably committed and broke every single one of the Ten Commandments. So it's important to understand that we make resolutions. We want to follow resolutions. They in themselves are not sufficient for Christian living, right? But before you judge King David too quickly... Uh, I think it's, uh, I'm not sure if it's Lincoln Duncan who came up with this, but he said, think about this. When you had a good king in Israel, you know what it said about the good king of Israel? He did like his father, David. When you had a bad king of Israel, and there are at least 12 bad kings and maybe eight good kings, when you had a bad king, it always says, but he did not do like his father, David. David set the standard. David set the resolutions. David implemented the government, the cabinet, the judicial system, everything in Israel. So while he personally may have fallen, his legacy left a lifetime through hundreds and hundreds of years of Israel. And so that reminds us, David failed and we failed too. And it reminds us that salvation is through grace alone in Jesus Christ alone. You know, when David broke these resolutions, and we mentioned Bathsheba especially, it's interesting that when you go to Psalm 51, 
He doesn't say, Lord, have mercy on me because I made some really good resolutions. He doesn't say, Lord, have mercy on me because I tried to keep these resolutions. He doesn't say, Lord, I've tried to live a good life. I've tried to be a good king. He says, Lord, forgive me because of your loving kindness, because of your steadfast love. So we need to leave here tonight to have a resolution to worship in our homes, to walk in purity. That's the the bulk of tonight's message. To keep godly company and to hate wickedness. All right, next week is going to be the last psalm we look at. It's going to be Psalm 145. It's the last psalm that David writes. And I believe he saved the best for last. <laughs>